Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How does a young teenager who's brutally subjected to sexual slavery escape a civil war, land in Australia, and rebuild her life? And why does motherhood send her back the land that terrorised her as she tries to empower some of the most disempowered women and girls on earth. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. There's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. And my goodness, have we got a story to share with you. An incredible story of courage and resilience in the face of hideous trauma. But while that might sound almost too bleak to bear, hang on for a moment because this is a story of incredible compassion too and inspiration. And I really want you to meet this extraordinary woman. But before you do, that fabulous producer of mine, Martin, is giving me the wave. Now, those of you who listen each week know what I'm about to say. So I'll say it for those who may be new to Broad Talk. If you'd like to get in touch with me and the rest of our lovely Broad Talk listening community, you're most welcome to drop into our Broad Talk Facebook page. Click on Group and join the Broad Talk Roundtable. I pop in there most days and post a few bits and pieces about what's going on or share some of the great articles that I've come across. And I'd love to pull up a virtual chair for you so that you can join the discussion or indeed even start one. Tell me what you think, what's going on and what's worrying you about the state of gender equality right now. And goodness knows, we need to be having these conversations at the moment, here in Australia and indeed right around the world. You can also find me on Twitter, and yes, we have a new Twitter handle, at TalkBroad, yes, it's backwards, at TalkBroad, all one word, and you can also find me at Virginia underscore House, H-A-U-S-S. And lastly, if you haven't already, please subscribe and send Broad Talk around to 
everyone you know. Now, back to the woman of the moment. I first met Aminata Conte-Bijur a couple of weeks ago. We found ourselves sitting next to each other around a boardroom table at a planning meeting ahead of the March for Justice rally in Canberra. We were both speakers at the rally and we quickly fell into a big, broad discussion about gender inequity. A fascinating discussion. But what I didn't know then, but have since learnt, is Aminata's incredible personal story. Born in Sierra Leone, she was caught up in the shocking civil war in that country in the late 1990s, where she was snatched from her father by the rebel forces and imprisoned. Repeatedly raped and traumatised, she was kept as a sex slave until finally escaping. The UNHCR quickly elevated her status as a vulnerable refugee and she was flown to Australia alone, arriving in a foreign nation she knew very little about. Now here is where I think her life takes some amazing turns. The trauma of what she'd been through could easily have affected her by crippling her emotionally and spiritually, even physically. But it didn't. Instead, she made a choice, a choice to live well and to help other women back in her homeland live better lives too. Aminata, welcome to Broad Talk. It is such a delight to have you join us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bethany, for having me. Now, look, it's a delight. There's so much I want to talk to you about. But let's go first to the rally because, as I said, that's where you and I met, the the big march for justice. And like you, I was about to go up onto that stage and I watched you standing at the side. I watched you climb those stairs and walk out onto the stage. And from where we stood beforehand, it was kind of hard to get a sense of how big the crowd is. But when you got up there, you could see that there were not just one or 2,000, but up to 15,000. What went through your mind when you looked out at that crowd? Well, as I, as I climbed up and I just saw the amount of people and I saw women in front of me who were Wendy McCarthy and all these women mm. who have been dancing uh, and mm. singing. But also what I felt was a refuse of uh, being silent anymore, like no more. I felt a spirit of women's energy coming together and being angry, being mad and being just saying, we can't accept this, this no more. And I was so proud to be part of that contribution. And, um, and I, I, for a second, I had a glimpse of my life, honestly, in Sierra Leone with my dad and then in the war. And I had to really pick up where, what I was, what I was going to uh, uh, talk about. But I, I did felt my spirit in between traveling between back home and where I was in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. It was incredible, and, and watching you talk was amazing. The crowd were hanging off your every word. Share with us what your message was. My message was: um, I truly believe that silence, when we, when we, when we silence, we, we've actually spoken or chosen a side. And I think for a long time, I know with my, with including my story, you give power to the people or to the men who have, who have done and continue to do what they're doing. So for, for myself, being there as a woman, as a human being first, as a woman, and then as a woman of color, I, I kind of feel like I've gone through all those steps in my life. I'm only 40 years old, and I've gone through all those steps. So 
being there just was was just um, incredible, really, to stand there and feel like the, this is where I'm here today. And it's such a privilege to be able to speak on behalf of those women because there are women who have spoken on behalf of us and that mm. we are now able to stand on their shoulder. You said something, too, that really stuck with me about being believed when talking about sexual abuse and sexual violence, the need to be believed. And you, because you are a black woman, you may reference to the fact that, gosh, if, if women who aren't coloured, if white women aren't believed, imagine what it's like for us. Just share a little bit of, of why you said that. Well, I think the content of being raped and uh, being abused doesn't matter where it starts. First of all, the victim have to carry, I always believe, have to carry two things, um, shame and guilt. Shame that something has been taken away from them. And then guilt that if they had caused something, and in my case, even though it was a war, I felt that. And so coming to Australia, as I said in my speech, I came to Australia. The reason why the UNHCR wanted me to come to Australia was to be safe. And I've learned so many um so many things around race and, and gender uh, coming to Australia, where this is a country where it's it's a white country. The prime ministers are everywhere you turn. I remember coming to Australia in 2000. It would take me a month or two for me to see somebody that looks like me. Well, same as if you were to visit in, in Syria or you know, Africa, if the prime minister, the person that represents us, does not believe his people, I am his people because I am a citizen, but his true people are white people. And if he doesn't believe them, how can he believe somebody that looks like me? What hope is there for a woman of color or Aboriginal women? There is no hope. And that is realistic. And I know that everybody knows that. But I think for me, it was important to speak of that because African people or, or people of color don't even have the courage to tell these stories and let alone making sure that they're going to bring these stories to life or not being believed. So there is something that got broken to a victim when they're not believed also. So I thought it was important to share that. It was a really powerful message, I've got to say, and I think it, you know, it really did impact a lot of people. I could see women incredibly moved by what you were saying. I want to, I, I want you to share a little bit of your story or what you can, uh, what you feel comfortable with. One of the things that I, I'm, I'm just amazed by is is how you came to the point where you decided to to go public with your incredible story and what you'd experienced. Because from what I understand, when you first came to Australia and you went to school, you kept your story, your background pretty secret, didn't you? Yes, I did. And it, I'm choosing to come to Australia because, as I said, I chose to come to Australia. And the reason why was because there was no refugee for my country that I've come in that would recognize me the way when I was released on television. So I chose to come to Australia to be really to keep my story to myself and not share To be that. anonymous. Yes. So you wanted so to be anonymous. I wanted to be, and, and I didn't want to be pity to, for people to help me, for people to help me because they've known my story. So they were kind of, and I wanted to start fresh also, not be reminded of what had happened to me. So when I, when I, that's, that was the reason why I decided to come. Now speaking, t- starting telling my story was because my spiritual father, Michael Dwyer, 
who is the chair of UNHCR, um, Australia for UNHCR, used to take me to um, UNHCR event. And I would hear people tell their story. And for me, I was always uh, sitting there, I was questioning myself, why would a refugee or anyone tell their story? Because I didn't feel, feel like my story was valued. I have seen horror. I have seen what happened to people. I, in every, in, when I was kidnapped, I would, somebody next to me would be just shot dead. So I've seen that. So I didn't feel like because of that, my story had valued to be told. I didn't know about storytelling. So as Michael Dwyer started taking me to this event, and then I realized that in Australia, nobody knew of Syria mm. and what had happened. So that was the courage, really, for me that people don't know about what had happened to somebody like me or, 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 or refugees from Sierra Leone. You mentioned the word shame, though, and, and, and guilt and a sense of even though you were imprisoned, you were captured against your will, you still felt a sense of shame. Why is that? Well, it's simply because something has been taken away from you without your consent. And what is being taken away, it's part of your body, it's part of your being. Somebody has come in without any invitation and ripped that away for you. And anything that you've not given to anybody willingly, especially that intimate part, it, it's, it, you've, there's something that has been broken. So that caused the shame. So you feel like once somebody knows that, they judge you by that. So for me, so I, and, I, and I truly believe every single person, doesn't matter where you are, be, you have been raped, you will carry that shame for a long time until you speak out on it, until you own the story for you to be able to release. But if not for a long time, I shared on my book that I was in prison. I was in Australia feeling that I was free, I was safe, but I was, my whole body was in prison because as I walk through, I'm constantly having conversation, do they know? Or when I'm giving a compliment, do they know? You know, or if somebody, a man looked at me in a, in a beautiful way, do they know? So you carry that with you. And you have that conversation with yourself. So in a sense, actually telling your story, and, and you mentioned your book, your beautiful book, Rising Heart, which does outline your story, you know, quite graphically. In telling your story, was that a sense of, or did that give you a sense of release? Oh, it set me free completely. I've been telling my story. I told my story in a theatre form of a, a play that was called The Bokeh Hills African Story, a, 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 uh, The Bokeh Hills African Hills. But it's when you, when you have been in prison and when you have a taste of freedom, it's something that you will continue to live by. The way I am now and the way I lived my life, I am light. I feel light. I feel free and I feel liberated to live and to know that I fought that hard to survive. I'm actually living my best life every single day. It's not perfect, but I am. That releases me. There's nothing anybody can tell me about myself that is not out there or I don't know about myself. For me, I think victim need to get to that point and not to share it openly, or to take that step, because until you do, you will con- you will continually carry that 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 imprisonment in your body for the rest of your life, and that is something. Yeah, I'm grateful for that I did. Aminata, you put it so beautifully. <laughs> you really do. But you're an incredible survivor. Can you tell us a little bit about how old you were when you were snatched from your father and, and what happened? I was 18 years old. Um, I grew up with my incredible, the most 
hum, incredible human being on earth, my, my, my father, who had loved and protected us, especially his daughters, um, really provide whatever needs we, we, we want in, in being there as a, as a single dad. But we, we did not even feel the need to even miss our mother because he showed up, he was there for every single, every single time we need him. And I and I lived in a bubble. So as when I talk sometimes about privilege, I know what that meant because I do lived in I lived in that bubble in a very privileged. Because life. you you did come from fairly comfortable life, but you didn't yes. have your mother. I didn't have my mother. So my parents divorced when I was quite young. So I have no memory of her. But my they have a really beautiful relationship um, that really kept the family going. But um, I was kidnapped in the hands of taking the hands of my dad. I was eighteen years old, and I remember standing outside in the field after they've asked us to come out. I was holding my dad's hand. He, he was sick with Parkinson. He had Parkinson then, and he had and cancer, which we didn't know much about. I don't know what Parkinson was. So his hands were shaking. But as, I, as one of the rebel, Darami, looked at me, because we've heard story before. So as soon as he looked at me, I knew straight away he was coming for me. So by the time he came closer and he said, you come here, I immediately let go of my dad's hand and walk towards him and never looked back. I, and and mm-hmm. I, I was scared to look back because I felt that instant to protect him because my dad, you could not touch his children, especially his daughter. Mm-hmm. And for me, at that time, I knew that the, the, the things, the incident that was going to happen, I, that came up to my in my mind that they, if he fought, they would kill him or they would ask me to kill him or they would rape me in front of him, and that would have literally stopped his heart. So I walked so you, towards him. So you just, just went, walked. you, you yeah. walked in, basically walked right into, well, into their arms, I suppose. Yeah. How, uh, how long were you imprisoned? I was in prison for um, several months. I still don't have memories. I thought it was three months, but my friends that I was kidnapped with thought it's seven months, so I'm still in between that phase, yeah. Mm. During that time, were, were you on your own or were you surrounded by other women and girls that you knew? I was surrounded by a few friends that I've met that we used to go to the same school together, but we were not really close. So the, the rebel Darami that kidnapped me had kidnapped about four girls also. So they, they have about sometimes five, six women with them that they would claim that's their wife or their, their partner. And also my brother, uh, my older brother, who, had saw, who saw that I, I was taken, I was kidnapped, followed me quietly uh, because we were very close, decided to follow me thinking that he was going to protect me. So he was with me through the whole ordeal when I was kidnapped. I'm not sure if that was a blessing or not to have your brother there. Um, how did you cope during those several months when you were being constantly abused and no doubt um, traumatized as well, but h- how did you, how did you stay alive? How did I stay alive? I, I, I believe the strength of my dad and my faith, and they also, I, I, I think for me, it's very important for people to know when there's a war, you do not have a time to contemplate that. You mm-hmm. know, we were in surviving mode every second, every minute. And when we rested, it was because there was no fighting going on. It was during the most intense time. So I don't have, so every minute for me, knowing that I'm alive, just make, just give me um, a guarantee that I have to keep going. 
because the, the survival skills that I came up with, pretending I was dead, taking dead body, laid over me, pretend I was dead. There were so many things that I had to go through just to survive that time. So we don't, you don't really have the, the moment to think to really how to survive. You just survive. And I think it's very, people who have gone through war, it's very important when, as a refugee or migrant, when they come to a country like Australia to understand the skills and what they've gone through even, that these are things I never thought I, I had in me. Um, so, but uh, for me, I was thinking a lot about my dad. My dad, I, I didn't know if he was alive or not, but I could feel, I could feel his brokenness. I could feel that he was gone. I could feel that he was crying every day. And even though I was crying when I was being um, raped and being abused that way, I was constantly thinking of him. And when I came back, when I saw him, I knew why. I understood that. It's an incredible story. Aminata, we're just going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. Aminata, hearing your story uh, makes me, or well, I guess reminds me of how comfortable and lucky we are in Australia. Um, I talk a lot about gender inequality, my anger and frustration, but uh, it feels like it is insignificant compared to what you've been through. When you came to Australia and you were still very young, just share with us a little bit about what it was like going to school and keeping your your story secret. It felt um, coming back and going to school and really uh, to a place where there was no community for me. Um, it felt really like you almost like you jump in a ferry in a boat that you're trying to sink in, and you've got a small boat, and you just got to go like I got to focus and keep diving in. And for me, that's what it felt like. It was not because I was trying to really forget my story. I knew that uh, I had to make sure my dad well-being and knows that I'm happy because he, he was still struggling in London with his sickness. And so that was my focus. It was not really about what had happened. And, and also, I think very early I learned very early that what had happened to me had already happened. I forgave, not even understanding what forgiveness meant. And I think those kind of things saved me from my from reliving my story. What do you mean you forgave? Who did you forgive? The men who'd raped you? 
Yes, I did. I did forgive that because I think when 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 I have survived and and the way I was also um, uh, released, it was it was a miracle the way I was with. I was part of an exchange that happened between the government and the rebels, and I was given a letter to give to the government, um, and then it was read on the news. So my father found that I was alive on TV. Can I ask you why were you chosen for that exchange? I was chosen because uh, one of the rebel leader has uh, brutally raped me the night before, really badly, and he felt sort of guilt. Um, and that this is very it's very unusual, which I describe in the book. That uh, his name was Colbert, that was his nickname. Um, he was one of the most vicious human being you could ever meet. And for some reason, I felt really safe with him for a couple of weeks because he had helped me. And I thought he didn't have any interest, so he changed his mind the night the night before I was released. And for for a moment there, when he saw me the following day, he felt he felt shame. He felt ashamed of what he has done. He felt like he has broken something. And you will never, if you, if you know of this man, you would never think he has any consciousness of shame. And because of that. He released me. That's an extraordinary um, story in itself, that someone as brutal as that, as vicious and vile as, as he was and is, that you think that he, he was experiencing a moment of shame and, and guilt and therefore chose you to, to be released. That, that is kind of unbelievable, really. Yes, but, yes. but it says something about humanity, doesn't it? it? It does say something about humanity and it does say something about... For me, I I truly believe when he when the the, the day the night before after he raped me um, the morning I automatically said to a friend of mine that I was going to be released because I had on the news that they were going to release some children so they were not going to release any teenager or adult it was going to be just little children and um, my my faith is something that I've always held on to my belief and I knew that through all those journey that I've gone through. I was I was guided by angels and my dad was with me. So even that opportunity for him doing that, I believe there was a hand in it. Because in, in his real being, he would not do that. I have seen him do, do the most vicious thing that I didn't think he was capable. So I would not credit him. I would credit a higher power in for, for wow. God. God. That's that's um a, a an incredible and beautiful way of, of looking at Amanata. I want to, to move on to talk about the work that you've been doing with the Amanata Foundation. But before I do, let's just drop in the fact that you did get married. You married a charming French man and you have two beautiful daughters. Now, I'm going to ask this question and please just answer it as much as you feel comfortable, but given what you'd been through, how did you reconcile that with allowing yourself to f- then fall in love and get married and have children? Was was that a was that a decision? Was it something that just swept over you, or did you have to really work on your yourself to? enable yourself to be open to that? Well, I, I believe that we all have to work in ourselves for us to uh, get what we want. You have to love yourself, and which is something that I did. But um, I've never not believed in men. I have the most incredible <laughs> man in my life. My father was all the value of all the legacy that I'm living today was because of him. 
So I never thought I was never going to fall in love. In fact, I was more into being in love. And I never, and I always knew that if I was going to marry the man, it was going to be exactly, but even more of my father. So love and trust in men was never in the, in, out of that picture at all. I knew I was going to, every, all the life that I'm living, I knew was possible. And my dad has laid that foundation for me. So when I met Antoine, it, it was not anything that I had to think second thought. But what I think I knew that I would not give is a power for anyone or man to have power over my story when I want to share it or how I should share it. That was something that I knew that if I, it doesn't matter how much I love you, I will not give that power to anyone. I, I own my story and I, I, I embrace my story in every shape or form and any how I choose to share it, even with my children. I share it that way. So that, that decision was, was clear to me. But love, I knew that I was going to fall in love for sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. It's really that. beautiful. Tell, tell us about when you had your first daughter. What happened? Um, so my daughter, I had my first daughter, Sarafina, in um, 2012. As, as a, a woman now living in Australia, of course, you go to the hospital to have an, a natural birth or a, a baby. And you look forward. Every mother look forward to see the baby's face. I truly believe that. You just want to see that face. Even if you know the sex, you just want to see what they look like. And um, we went to the hospital and all of a sudden it went really, really scary and really bad. Um, my daughter was five kilo. They didn't check the weight. The doctor didn't check the weight at St. George Hospital. And, and my mom, my mother was in the room. My sister was in the room. Antoine was dead quiet. And we knew something was going wrong. They knew something was going wrong. But I was just focused in bringing that child alive. And I remember a doctor walked in. She was just visiting. She was wearing a jean and a T-shirt. And she just saw the position, everything. And all the doctors were quiet, seven doctors. And I remember just, I remember just going in the, in the, uh, her going inside and just pull my baby without wearing gloves because she was so scared. So she just pulled the baby and my, my daughter's hand got injury. And I, I, I would, she didn't cry. She didn't make any noise, which everybody was scared. And I remember just praying and saying, I want to see her. My husband just whispered in my ears. I didn't know I was having a daughter and said, we have Serafina. And then few, a uh, few minutes after they brought her in and she was just perfect. She was just perfect. And <laughs> And, and for me, that's how that journey starts in really um, getting to the work that I'm doing now. Well, that, yeah, that, that, that experience, uh, traumatic as that was, it, interestingly that it has led to, or led you to then reflect on childbirth back in Sierra Leone, which we know is, is one of the worst places in the world for a woman to give birth. In fact, it's one of the most dangerous places in the world for women to give birth. So tell us a little bit about your work with the Aminata Foundation. So the Aminata Foundation, we, we partner with a hospital in Sierra Leone in Freetown, the capital city of Freetown, which is the second busiest maternal hospital. It's a private hospital where we deliver all the services for free, which is from the moment a woman is pregnant. But we also do educational program for young teenage pregnancy because when um, Ebola hit Sierra Leone, um, 66% of uh, teenage pregnancy went in skyrocket, 66%. So there was a lot of teenage pregnancy that was sleeping in the streets. So we walk around that, we walk in the rural area. We're also the only hospital there that does the fistula operation where a woman has been injured for a delivering child and they urinate on themselves constantly 
So we do the surgery and we also we prevent it and we we cure that. So it's a hospital that that had a set of value that really really was what I wanted to do. And um, women come in free, and we we go to the rural area. We get uh, women from the rural area who have been living with fistula for over twenty years or forty years, and it's just. One in eight, one in 17 women die through childbirth, while in Australia it's one to 7,800. So my, my, our, my foundation job there is to build capacity. So the partnership is to continue to build capacity because um, of the, how bad it is in Sierra Leone. So if you had been not in Australia but back in Sierra Leone and had your daughter, Serafina, um, given the, the difficulty you went through during that birth, you probably wouldn't have survived and perhaps nor would she. Is that how you felt at the time? Absolutely. I still felt that way. I, I would know that because it's the, small, the cases that happen in Sierra Leone, it can be something very simple that really a mother and a child would die from. Well, for me, I had I was in St George's Hospital in Sydney, and I had seven doctors. You know, in mm. Sierra Leone, we need there's only six obstetrician in the country. Six, six. There's only six obstetrician in the country. My and goodness. Yes, and uh, we need about three thousand seven hundred midwife. We have less than fifteen percent of that. So, um, so I would have definitely died, and she would have died. And I think even here in in the hospital here, they, they were hoping that I survived, not my daughter, because not hoping that I so I was going to survive, but because her position was so bad and it was late for cesarean for me, so the doctor was they were just trying to do their best, but they wanted to make sure that mm-hmm. I survived. And in places like Sierra Leone, there is no one a, a woman have to be in a room and give birth, and if anything goes off, it goes that's it. A couple of days after. This woman will fall again pregnant or the child will just be given to their auntie or uncle or neighbors take care of them. And that is the case. That's the reality of a lot of women. Uh, Goodness me. It's extraordinary, uh, isn't it? I mean, there are a whole, a whole um, kaleidoscope of things that brought you to Australia, obviously. But uh, when you look at something like that, what you went through in childbirth and know that had you been in Sierra Leone, you would have died. I must admit, I have thought this myself about not childbirth, but um, cancer treatment. If I had been diagnosed with the cancer I had in Afghanistan, for example, where I spent a bit of time, I wouldn't be alive. There's no way I'd be alive. But here in Australia, I had the privilege of incredible medical intervention and and fantastic uh, oncologists and, like you, many doctors on hand. But I have a dear friend who's from Afghanistan, and I know if I was in her village, I would not be alive. So it's moments, well, realisations like that that makes us feel so incredibly lucky to be here. But also, I guess like you, we tend to think too, well, therefore I need to use my time and my life and this gift of life wisely, and which is why I guess you turned to, to do what you're doing. But in setting up or be and, and running the Aminata Foundation, it's cost you a lot personally because you have had to tell your story over and over again, um, yes. which I imagine is, 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 is pretty hard. I understand why you did it, but, but how hard has that been? It, it has been incredibly hard. I think it, it, it is hard because in, in, a, in the Western world, as an African woman, we tell our story and we have to retell it and retell it. And there's no sort of, sort of like a value on it in a way. Mm. 
when a white woman's story is being told. We know all know that's true. And and I think for myself, I heard somebody said to I met somebody the other day and said, you know, you, you, you probably should be careful how you're gonna tell us much because then you so all of a sudden it become numb to it. So two things will happen, you probably become really numb to it or don't um, tell it without any any kind of reaction. And I remember even when I was writing my book, Rising Heart. I told the story to my ghostwriter, who is my beautiful friend, Juliet. And, and then when they sent the script to me and I looked at it and I said, that can be me because it was the emotion. I was just telling it. I was just mm-hmm. explaining it. And my dear friend, uh, Rose Horan, who um, is also the godparent of my kids and was the producer of the Bokem Hills African Ladies Group, had to call Pam McQuillan and said, no, you can't write it this way. When, you, when Amina to tell a story, you've got to come back to her and ask her how she's feeling. Now, in the West, people don't ask that, how are you feeling? And even telling my story through my book, people, women are meant to be strong, and especially African women, we're supposed to be strong. We're so so we, we do put on that armor on and to continue to move on because you don't have people to nurture that for you. So, and then for me, I think I feel like I've been blessed enough to be here and live the life that I'm living. I want to give back because... People don't know the stories that are happening in Sierra Leone. But I think it's been incredibly hard, not the reaction that I I feel like I have to tell it all the time. And most of the time, too, when I tell it, which is something that I've changed since my book came out, I have to have a white person next to me t- supporting oh. telling it. Yes, because it's almost feel convincing or people will come more. It, it's the reality. And that's something that I've kind of changed. Sorry, do you mean, do you mean a, a white person by you when you tell your story to somehow give some kind of, I don't know, imprimatur to it or somehow support the, the, the validity of it? Yes, but also because especially far off where we live in Australia, when I am telling a story or first of all, the platform of me telling a story after a white person brought me to that platform, that is true. Mm-hmm. But also the support in, in, in even raising fund, I have to have that. You know, then it seems unbelievable. If you believe, I remember even most of the time when I would share about Sierra Leone, the beauty of Sierra Leone, because Sierra Leone is stunning. And I will always, and I describe that in my book, I'll always make sure because my chair, Penny to love Sierra Leone. She's seeing it. So I will always give her that platform to tell it because I feel like people in Australia will believe her more than I. And I describe that in my book when somebody questioned me one time at the Sydney State's Library who was interested in being in the foundation. And, and I said, I'm going to Sierra Leone. And SBS Dateline was coming with me. And then she said to me, well, if you go to Sierra Leone and you come back, who will believe what you say? Goodness. Yes. And, and I was shocked. And I knew the content where it's coming from. And I was expecting that person next that was standing there to say something, but those are the things that we have to go through. So it is cost a lot because I have made sacrifices. I had to stop working and pay, put my full attention in it and, and uh, to, to, to this foundation because it will not go where it is now if I, if I had a full-time job. But it is the reality. So I think those little, those things, not little, but they're very important and those also continue to hurt somebody like me, because you're trying to do just not just for women in Sierra but for every woman, so that that volume of maternal health cannot just stop in Sierra Leone, where it can go everywhere around the world. Every woman deserves to have a safe birth. So, so, but that's the sacrifices sometimes that we have to make. <laughs> <laughs> 
Aminata, I could talk to you all day, and unfortunately, I we can't. But for those who are listening, it the the foundation is called the Aminata Maternal Foundation, and you also well, you mentioned that fantastic SBS documentary, which is also available on your website, the Aminata Maternal Foundation or Aminata Foundation. Um, anyone can watch the your extraordinary story in that documentary. And there was also just lastly a play, a play written about your story. Just just remind me the name of the play. It's called the Bokham Hills African Ladies Troupe. Yeah, <laughs> so you can, you can watch it. You can watch it too. There's a documentary about it on SBS, also Dateline. So both of my story and the four women story that was told in theatre for yeah. more. Rose also made a documentary to continue to help women of, who have gone through violent, sexual abuse. So it's on mm. SBS Dateline. So it well look and congratulations on on telling those stories and sharing those stories and the fact that they've been made into documentaries and plays and film uh, does mean more and more people, of course, um, have access to that, which is a wonderful thing. Look, as I say, there's there's so much more I would like to talk to you about, but unfortunately we can't. I have to let you go. But thank you so so much for for joining me on Broad Talk. Um, and I just hope that this is the beginning of many many more conversations that we have. So so thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And to you, thank you for joining us for Broad Talk for this fascinating discussion with Aminata. Um, as I've said, if you would like to join the community of discussants um, or the community of Broad Talk chatters, I should really call them, please jump on the Facebook page at Broad Talk and uh, you're most welcome to join the group, which is the Broad Talk Roundtable. And uh, drop us a line or contact me that way or on Twitter at TalkBroad or Virginia underscore House. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's always such a delight to hear from you and to, to hear what you're thinking. I really do really enjoy that and really value it. So thank you. And our thanks, of course, to the amazing Aminata. So until next time, Broad Talk Chatters, happy chatting. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.